Welcome to Season 3 of This Is Your Life in Silicon Valley, a podcast about the Bay Area, technology, and culture. I'm your host, Sunil Rajaraman, and I'm joined by my co-host, Yasha Kekis-Wolf. Sunil, we're like a week into your home pod, right, with your school, with your kids. How's that going? It's been a new experience, and so uh, one thing I hadn't anticipated um, so we have, you know, we have three families getting together and, uh, you know, neighbor, a couple of houses down is hosting in their garage, uh, and the fires, <laughs> like we'll leave the garage open. And so we scrambled to, uh, you know, a store, one of the, one of the families got an AC unit so that the kids can basically learn inside because of the fires. It's like, what, what else can 2020 throw at you? I'm sure it's got something else. I, I heard that there was like a fluster of uh, like earthquake activity down in Southern California. Maybe the San Andreas is going to get ready for us for the latter half of the year. Fingers crossed. Hey, um, like semi-serious question. What do you, as a, like a pod group, do you have a required set of school things that you have to go buy at Target and stuff and then bring with each other? Like, how do you do, how do you do all of that? We are working with an amazing teacher, Lisa, who put together a list of supplies and all of that good stuff that we would need. She reviewed the uh, school district schedule. And so she is administering um, the required, you know, uh, teachings, video meetings, et cetera, for all the kids. And additionally, you know, helping them with their homework and supplementing to the extent necessary. Wow, that sounds amazing. I think we're in a, like a super strange time where we're all kind of adapting. Our teachers are adapting. Our kids are adapting. I have three kids. You've got a couple of kids. And and this kind of at-home environment where we're learning, whether it's hybrid or full distance learning or whatever it ends up becoming in the future, kind of reminds me of what I used to think about homeschooling. And I'll be totally honest, Neil. Like, I'd never really thought about homeschooling for the kids. I didn't really know a lot about it. In fact, I didn't even really know how to research about it. And along came an introduction to this guy we have on the podcast today, Ryan Delk. Ryan is working on a company called Primer, which is backed by some of the top investors in uh, Silicon Valley, including Founders Fund and uh, Tyler Willis, our mutual friend. Um, but they uh, they plan on you know kind of leaning into this societal change that we're seeing and coming up with a product that will basically solve this and enable parents to homeschool their kids very effectively. And I, I think there may be some misconceptions about uh, homeschooling that I had going into the discussion. We certainly got a chance to talk about them in today's discussion as well. But like fundamentally, anybody who's curious about what you do if you're going to start to embark on learning about homeschooling is really at a loss as to where to go. So I actually found the conversation pretty fascinating just because you and I got a chance to ask a lot of questions about the fundamentals of what should we be asking about if we're interested in homeschooling. So kind of a fascinating discussion, just purely from an educational perspective today. If you're a parent, you'll love it. If you're uh, somebody who's just curious on how parents are managing right now, you will get a good glimpse in. Ryan, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Uh, I'm excited to be here too. Although I'll tell you, like throughout the day, I, I work in this little office outside of my house and there's no air conditioning. Poor me. 
and it just keeps getting hotter and hotter and hotter. And I realized that around 5.30 or so today that I think it's probably up to like 130 degrees inside of here. So I'm super excited wow. to be here, minus the fact that I'm just sweating like crazy, which is way too much information. I certainly understand. <laughs> so thanks for letting me share. Hey, but Ryan, we're, we're excited to have you here today, um, in large part because Sunil and I both have kids, and we both think a lot about them and school, especially right now. We're going to get into that a little bit with you and some of the things that you're working on and thinking about right now. But before we get there, um, I want to know a little bit about you. We want to know a little bit about you. Where are you from? Are you a San Francisco Bay native? I'm not. Uh, I was actually born in Atlanta and then moved to Florida uh, when I was very young, like one or two years old. Uh, my mom was a public school teacher in Atlanta, um, and then we moved to moved to Florida. And then I grew up uh, grew up in Orlando until moving out to San Francisco almost 10 years ago was there ever a point in time where you're in orlando and you're like hey i really i really gotta go to san francisco i gotta get to san francisco yeah it was interesting so i um i, I sort of actually got to san francisco by way of nairobi kenya which is kind of interesting so i did a um i did an internship sort of thing for a guy that was i, I read about him and we had a couple of mutual friends who was building like a tech hub in nairobi um, and so I went, I emailed him and said, Hey, can I come intern for you? I think this was my sophomore summer in college and, uh, went out there and ended up through that, uh, meeting a bunch of like different tech folks like Marissa Meyer and Tim Ferriss and different people came to Nairobi while I was there. And so I got to meet them and ended up getting hooked up, um, with the square folks when they were getting started and then a few other, um, different companies and founders. And that kind of like got my foot in the door um, in just Silicon Valley. And so it was kind of this bizarre, uh, kind of like got out here by way of, uh, by way of a summer in Nairobi. That was kind of like you in Cleveland, right? Sunil? He's like, that's a bad joke. Yeah. 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 I guess so. I guess so. Uh, you know, we, I have, I have the Cleveland connection with, uh, you know, with Tyler, uh, who, you know, introduced Ryan to us, uh, shout out to, uh, Tyler Willis and yes. who also introduced us, um, uh, Yasha and I, and, you know, Tyler, you're responsible for the birth of this podcast and God, God knows how, how much else. Uh, <laughs> so, you know, let's, let's, let's get right into it. I want to, I want to pivot into the hard questions about education. So here's my, here's my life situation at the moment. We've got a seven-year-old, we've got a five-year-old, we live in the suburbs of the Bay area. Obviously COVID has drastically reshaped things. Um, we basically managed to piece together <laughs> childcare uh, sort of last minute. Um, we have a, the younger one going to a Montessori school sort of locally. She is, you know, a kindergartner and she's doing some of the distance learning stuff with the school, uh, of course, but then spending the rest of her days in Montessori. We did the thing where we formed a homeschool pod for the older one with two nice. other families and, uh, and a teacher who's helping administer the distance learning. Tell me about whether I'm doing a terrible job as a parent and, you know, what you're seeing, you know, kind of at large right now with how people are approaching the problem in the era of COVID. Yeah. So I think important context on this uh, is, so I want to just shout a few things. So one is uh, I was homeschooled uh, from kindergarten through eighth grade. So that colored my, my experience a lot. I, I have very um, fond memories of homeschooling and really feel like it was a tr just a tremendous gift to me from my parents. Um, the second is that my parents sacrificed a lot for, uh, for us to be able to homeschool. When we started, I think my dad was working three jobs so that my mom could stay home with us. The public schools were really bad uh, where we were and we couldn't afford private school. 
Um, and so I'm sort of very aware of like the sacrifices that families make um, to, you know, make homeschooling possible. Um, the third thing is that I, we started Primer actually before all this. So I think a lot of people think we started Primer like after COVID. We actually started working on Primer almost a year ago um, and then COVID hit and kind of, you know, blew everything up. Um, and so that's, that's kind of some of the context from our end. So I, I think about homeschooling, I think, or have thought about homeschooling more outside of the context of, you know, obviously what's happening with COVID and that was the original thing and still is the thing that we're building towards. Um, but it happens to also, you know, be very relevant for families that are navigating it. So I think, um, things I would say with specific to your situation is that homeschooling without a dedicated parent, uh, to, to, you know, to be either full-time or like half-time on, you know, dedicated to education schooling is just extremely difficult. And that's the situation that a lot of families are in right now. And that's, you know, most homeschooling families that were homeschooling pre-COVID had one parent who was, you know, either full-time or, uh, you know, mostly dedicated to, you know, facilitating an educational experience for the kids. And so when you have two parents working at home or a single parent working at home and trying to navigate, you know, closed schools and distance learning and homeschooling, it's just going to be extremely hard no matter how you cut it. Um, so I think my first, my first thing is just like, you know, give your, cut yourself a ton of slack because this is like, you know, totally uncharted territory. Um, and the second thing I would say is just take advantage of the, like the fact that you don't have the, the sort of constraints of like a traditional education environment. And so you don't have a class, you're not constrained to a classroom. You're not in a 30 to one, you know, teacher or student teacher ratio. Um, you know, the world is your classroom and there's all these opportunities to sort of welcome our kids, uh, alongside sort of normal life uh, that, that can turn into learning experiences. And so, um, no, I don't think you're doing a terrible job. I think that anyone trying to fight for giving their kids a great education, uh, you know, is probably doing a great job. Uh, and your kids were probably, you know, very lucky to have you. I don't know a lot about homeschooling. I but needed to hear that. I needed <laughs> to hear that, by the way. It's the uh, little bit of yeah, thank you. some yeah. affirmation for you, Sunil. Yeah. I like that. I don't know a lot yeah. about homeschooling. Yeah. I don't know, Sunil, if you do either. But, Ryan, I'm kind of curious. What, like, how do you have to think about it as a parent? Can you start homeschooling at any point in time? Do you have to start at, you know, kindergarten or pre-K in, in kind of U.S. schools and then work your way up? Like, what's the, like, generally speaking, how should parents be thinking about homeschooling, especially right now? Yeah, it's a funny, funny question. So this question was actually basically the thing that started me down the, the rabbit hole that became primer. So when we had our first kid um, almost three years ago, I actually think maybe when we got pregnant with him, uh, I started thinking about education. And if you're not familiar with San Francisco, uh, for those listening, uh, public schools, it's a lottery system. So you can end up in a school that might be 45 minutes away from you. Um, and it's just very unpredictable and private schools are insanely expensive. And so my wife and I were trying to figure out, okay, what are we going to do for education? And I started thinking about homeschooling and I just assumed that someone had built like a platform where I could pay them like a hundred bucks a month and they would just take care of like everything for homeschooling. Like give me the curriculum to buy, give me coaching, handle all the regulatory stuff, tell me how to get started. And I started researching it and all I could find, first of all, that doesn't exist, didn't exist. And then second of all, there's all these Facebook groups. And so I started joining like Bay Area homeschool, you know, network on Facebook. And I was scrolling through these posts and everyone is asking the exact question that you just said, which is like, how the heck am I supposed to figure out how to get started? And all the regulations are super opaque. They're complicated. The forms don't work. You don't know where to send it. Um, it's just really, really hard to get started. And so a lot of parents spend tens or hundreds of hours just prepping to get to the first day of school homeschooling. 
Um, and so this was actually the first question that after like several weekends spent researching this, uh, I was like, okay, someone needs to fix this because it's actually not that hard uh, to get started homeschooling. You can get started homeschooling mid-year, at the beginning of the year, at any grade level. Um, and every state has different requirements for how you start that. Some states say, hey, you have to teach these subjects or you have to keep a portfolio that we can audit. Some states say, hey, we trust you to figure it out. Um, but it's, it varies by state, but it's actually not that complicated once you figure out actually what to do. Um, and so one of the first things we did when we started working on primer was we paid an education uh, legal team to, uh, to pay them tens of thousands of dollars to build out a uh, basically a database of every single homeschool regulation in every single state and then built a tool for parents to be able to just type in their address um, and their kids' grade levels and they could get all the information they need on how to homeschool in that state, which obviously we built that pre-COVID, but now has turned out to be a really valuable tool. So, um, uh, you know, what, I guess, which state, in your opinion, um, has the hardest sort of homeschooling rules? Because right now, top of mind in the discussion is also from Bay Area people anyway, is, oh, we can live anywhere, all remote. Where is it hard to homeschool? It's really hard to homeschool in Washington State, um, Pennsylvania, New York, and California are probably the hardest. D.C. is, is pretty difficult. Um, it varies a little bit by grade. And so like elementary school might be different than middle and high school in some states, but it just, if you wanted to paint it with broad strokes, those would be the most difficult states to homeschool just in terms of the work required of the parent and sort of the administrative, uh, like almost like audit type uh, sort of work that you have to do uh, on behalf of what your kids learn. Yeah, it, uh, it, it's, it's, it seems intimidating. And so can you talk a little bit about that? So let's just say, I don't know, I'm in elementary school. I'm your standard second grader. By the way, I'm, I'm asking for a friend, not for, not for me. Um, of course. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and you're going through this process. Like, what are some examples of boxes that you need to check at the elementary school level? Like if you were to, you know, go fully homeschool and, and be audited. Yeah. So it depends on the state. So the, the there's sort of the spectrum of there's a few things that states care about so the first is um the def sort of like i think about it as if the defaults so in some states the defaults are hey we uh you know we like the parent the default is that this child is with the parent um and if they don't show up for school the the default assumption is that like they're you know basically being homeschooled or the parent is taking care of it and there's other states where the default is hey if, if the child doesn't show up for a public school uh, or a private school where they're enrolled that's a huge problem um and so there's some states where you have to sort of start off by notifying and sort of with officially withdrawing like in california file paperwork to withdraw essentially from the school system um and then be able to uh you know and they call there's most states call this like an online declaration of intent they use a lot of different uh, a lot of different words and so the first, in most states, that's the first step is to sort of like say, tell the state and, the, and you know, it can be sometimes your county um, education office and sometimes it's the state and say, hey, we're gonna be homeschooling. And then in various states, they have uh, assessment requirements and mandated subjects. And so um, mandated subjects might be, uh, and so it's about, I think if I recall correctly, it's about 20 states don't have mandated subjects and then um, the rest of the states do. And so mandated subjects are usually what ties into like common core um, or IXL or whatever the various standards are um, in those states. And it, you know, will just basically say, hey, uh, you know, for this grade level, this is, you know, this is roughly uh, what you need to teach subject wise. Some states will actually then prescribe, okay, for second grade math, like this is what we expect. Um, and then assessment requirements are basically if the state requires you to have some sort of evaluation or assessment 
um, that you either have to submit to the state or just keep on file of your kid. And so this could be taking the SAT, this could be taking a end of year exam to sort of just like test where your kid's grade level equivalency is. Um, it could be something self-administered. It just depends on the state. Um, and then sometimes you have to actually uh, you know, file that and then sometimes you just have to have it on, on sort of, you know, if you were to be audited, um, you know, be able to produce that if asked. What, uh, one thing that I, I hear you um, say when you, or rather one omission that I hear when you describe this list and one thing that's really worrying me right now about um, distance learning in general is like the social aspects. And so um, I'm, I'm afraid about, you know, and part of the reason we formed the pod for the older one is so that, you know, she gets some social interaction and, um, you know, I feel like that's an important part of development. Can you talk a little bit about that and how, you know, homeschool sort of takes takes that into account? And yeah, yeah. just your your opinion, your take on that. So it's obviously way harder in COVID, right? Because most of the the venues for kids to get social interaction are either you know temporarily shut down or have moved online. So it's significantly more challenging in COVID. And homeschooling pods are certainly a great great way around that. Um, I think in the, in the sort of pre-COVID world of homeschooling, it was I think it's actually basically a non-issue. Um, if you talk to most homeschoolers that were homeschooled in the last, you know, call it 20 years, um, most of them will say this was, you know, it's basically like a sort of overblown stereotype and that there's not really a socialization problem with homeschooling um, because most of them were actually exposed to a lot of what you would call like real world things. Um, you know, much earlier in life because part of homeschooling usually is like your parents just kind of like doing life with you and using those as learning moments. And so, you know, if we went to the grocery store when I was eight or nine, my mom is using that as a learning moment on budgeting or, uh, you know, doing the math to figure out how much change we need or how much tax is going to be or all sorts of different things that you get exposed to in the real world. And that just helps with communication skills and all sorts of different things. So I think in a pre-COVID world, um, that's that's sort of an overblown stereotype. And I, I actually, my sort of personal belief on this is that that stereotype is founded in the fact that the early homeschoolers in the 80s and the early 90s were largely driven by sort of far right or far left um, political or ideological or religious convictions. And those families, um, you know, might have come across if you talk to them or if you were exposed to them might have come across in a certain way that would lead you to believe that those kids you know weren't socialized you know enough or didn't have the social skills that you would expect um and that's that stereotype has now you know sort of percolated down for 30 years when 86 or 87 percent of homeschoolers now today don't list religious or political or ideological views as their main reason for homeschooling so i think that's sort of like a stereotype that's hung around and doesn't really apply anymore I think specifically with COVID, um, you know, there's the pods is a great, great idea if you can do that, but a lot of parents don't have that option. And so um, I would encourage families to try to figure out how can you move as much sort of online, as much of the interaction you want your kids to have online as possible. And so there's lots of great clubs that are starting up and different opportunities for products you can sign up for to get your kids interacting with other kids and, you know, getting some of that, uh, you know, in a sort of digital form, which doesn't fully replace, you know, obviously the in-person, but Right. Um, can sort of work on some of the same social emotional learning and uh, you know communication skills and all that kind of stuff. So I've got a, I've got a two parter for you. The the first is you made kind of a brief mention of funding and reporting into schools and and that's part of the way that the business of at least schools that are in the states work today. If you are homeschooling, uh, do you get to participate in any of the kind of funding that the state gives out to schools? Or are you just completely set aside from any of the funding discussions that take place? Yeah, it's a pretty hotly debated topic. Um, 
and, and interestingly, uh, like libertarians and um, sort of uh, very progressive folks are like kind of seeing eye to eye on this now, which is interesting. Um, libertarians for a long time have basically said, hey, if, I'm, if you're a homeschooling parent um, and you're paying taxes into the education system to you know, conceivably pay for your, parent, your kid's you know, spot in a public school, um, you should be able to get some of that cash back because you're educating your child and you're taking that on yourself. Um, which that argument, you know, on the face of it, I think makes a lot of sense. It has some nuance and complications that I think needs to, needs to be thought through um, and what the downstream impacts of that are. Uh, and now it's, that's, that's been like a long held sort of libertarian argument. And so there's, I think it's maybe eight states that give you some sort of either tax rebate or um, some, in some cases, actually direct payment for education, you know, related things if you're homeschooling that effectively, you know, come out of your chunk of, it doesn't, in no state do you get, you know, 100% of it back, but come out of your chunk of what you're paying in taxes. Um, and then what's interesting is that now uh, a lot of very progressive political leaders are now saying, okay, well, if, um, if parents are now doing this, you know, sort of, they, they use the term unpaid labor uh, of educating their kids at home, the state should be compensating them for that um, because we don't want people doing unpaid labor. And so I, th I find it kind of interesting, um, sort of regardless of where you're on the political spectrum, that this sort of long held libertarian ideology and, and sort of policy proposal um, is now also sort of, uh, you know, coming up in, in progressive circles as well. Um, and so there's been some, some really good, I think, debate and discussion around that, that hopefully post COVID um, will, you know, will lead to a, a, a sort of deeper thought and analysis on what can be done there. Yeah. So it's kind of related. We had a, uh, Sunil and I had an interesting conversation with Austin Allred, who's the founder of a tech startup called uh, the Lambda School. And it's a kind yep. of, a, I don't know if how familiar you are with it, but it, as a reminder for, yeah, reader, a for our listeners, well, there you go. So cool. This will make sense for our listeners. It's a, a school that allows for people to enroll. And then until you graduate and get a job, you don't have to start paying them back. Um, part of our conversation uh, revolved around this idea, at least his idea that I think is shared by a, a growing number of people that higher education is kind of collapsing in the way that it works right now. And that right now he sees a legitimate opportunity to start to unbundle some of the values that you can get as a student in higher education. And when I hear, even you talk about uh, homeschooling, I kind of hear it as an alternative system to the way that schools work right now that are funded by the state and maybe even private schools to an extent because the, you know, the value might be similar, but the delivery is completely different and they are separate systems. You can't kind of bounce in and out of all of them. Do you ever see a scenario where kind of the concept of homeschooling, maybe the way that Sunil is talking about pods, can have a relationship into an unbundling of the way that we currently think about K through 12 education in particular? Yeah, I think it's it's more complicated than higher ed because K through 12, like the goal of higher ed for most people is to get a job. Um, and so it's this I would argue like, you know, in some case flawed, but very transparent goalpost that, you know, most adults view this success or failure of their college experience as whether or not they get a job. And so I think the unbundling of, college, of higher education is more about are there more efficient ways to help people get fulfilling jobs that pay them well than a four-year you know, traditional university degree. And I think we're seeing that the answer is yes. In K through 12, it's a little bit more nuanced and complex. There's all sorts of benefits. You know, The clearest parallel would be that the goal of K through 12 is maybe to get into college, uh, which I would also as, argue is also a overly simplistic and flawed um, goalposts for K through 12, but there's all sorts of other things, you know, I think about the, those 13 years of your life, um, going from, you know, basically a 
like five-year-old to an 18-year-old um, that, that need to be accomplished besides that and that, that school and education um, sort of plays a part of. So I think the unbundling of it is a lot more difficult because there isn't this sort of clear streamlining path. But what we are seeing is a lot of parents, and this is probably more uh, applicable in sort of the COVID, this, this COVID school year that are doing distance learning through a public school, realizing, okay, they can get all the distance learning done in two hours a day or two and a half hours a day. Um, and then using primer or other things like primer to supplement that experience with um, you know, really rich projects and community experiences for kids. And so I think that we'll see more of that um, as parents take education more into their hands this school year. Um, and then I think what I hope to see um, is, and we'll, we'll do a lot along, this, along these lines over the coming years, is to be able to leverage the network that we can create of homeschoolers um, who are using primer to be able to create sort of alternative an, an alternative education infrastructure um, that that sort of is is sits separate from private and public school but is still very accessible and so for parents who you know want to get a homeschool like experience for their kids but maybe don't want to do it themselves we can leverage that network to make it happen um, and so that's kind of like the what, one of the long-term goals for us um, is to build this new education infrastructure that can sort of sit parallel to private and public um, and be sort of a third alternative what uh what outcomes are we driving toward right now right and so i feel like that's obviously you know it could be just an overreaction right now my my belief is that you know we tend to overreact to things um but i i kind of romanticize sitting at the you know ucla gym uh you know grad school whatever watching the bruins play at poly pavilion you know basketball having those social events having these large gatherings at universities and building these relationships with people who are around the same age as you with same interests. Um, is that over or, you know, what's, what's going on? Like just provide your take and uh, you know, like what, what are we doing here? Like, you know, after post 18, you know, and are yeah. we just going to trade school? Like, yeah. Do you think, are you, are you talking about specifically, you're talking about specifically for higher ed? Yeah, I'm talking about for higher ed and and beyond, really, and also grad school and and all this stuff. Yeah. Like, play out play out the life cycle here. So I I think this is part of the 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 problem or what people are realizing is that if the goalpost is to get a job, then there's a much more efficient ways to do that, and that's what Lambda School and you know similar companies are proving. Um, and so I think the question then is is there what are what are the benefits of higher education outside of preparing you to get a job that you know, allows you to adequately provide for yourself and if you choose to have it a family. Um, and there's, you know, obviously all sorts of benefits to that. And then the question is, what are those benefits worth? Um, and is it worth paying the delta between what something like Lambda School costs and, you know, what, uh, you know, a semester at a local state school or Harvard or whatever costs? And there's obviously all sorts of other benefits, especially at the higher end of higher ed in terms of credentials and network. And you know, most people go to Harvard not to get a job, but they go to Harvard for all the other things that come along with it. And so I think a lot about, like if I, if I was sort of projecting out into the future, I would guess that the, the institutions that are hurt the, the most are the sort of mid-tier um, mid schools that are you know, mass sort of you know, educating 30, 40, 50,000 students a year um, and are sort of undifferentiated. And then I think the low end schools, like things like community colleges will probably move closer to like a trade school model. Um, they're already, you know, pretty economical because they're, you know, well, it's sort of principal agent problem, but they're at least economical to the end user um, due to taxpayer subsidies. 
and you know, for most people, they'll they, they will probably shift into more of like look more like a trade school. Um, and then I think the higher end, you know, is basically going to be fine because people will I think always want to go to Harvard or Yale or Stanford or whatever if they want to become president or a Supreme Court justice or whatever aspirations they have. Um, and so what I'm interested in and what I think a lot about is what are the what are the ways to marry something like a Lambda school with the other you know, sort of valuable parts of higher ed. So if you think about it as like socialization, um, you know, emotional development, discovering yourself, um, you know, shared experiences, you know, building lifelong friendships, learning how to live independently, whatever the, you can make a list of all these things. Is there a better way to bundle up those experiences? And I think one of the things that was interesting is I saw, I don't remember who it was, but, and I don't even think it's necessarily a good idea, but someone bought up all these hotel rooms in Hawaii, uh, like two or three hotels and is creating a bubble, like the MBA bubble, um, for college students who want to do their their semester with other students, um, but so they can go to whatever college they're going to virtually, um, and then they can basically do all those classes online at these hotels in Hawaii. If they do COVID tests to come in, isolate for like whatever four days, and then once they're in, they're in the bubble, and you know everyone's tested and you know whatever every day. That's brilliant. I love that. Um, and so that I love, is I like a that. fascinating you know way. And I, I have no idea. I don't know any details of it. So it's not an endorsement of that, but. And that's a fascinating way to sort of decouple and sort of unbundle. Um, you know, you could imagine Lambda, someone, you could imagine someone else creating a Lambda school campus where, you know, Lambda schools like, hey, we don't want to be in the business of operating a physical college, screw that. Um, but someone else says, hey, if you're attending Lambda school and you want the experience of, you know, we're going to have these really intentional events and building social experiences and all these things that's going to be cheaper than traditional college, but we're going to give you this, you know, here's the five goal, five things we think are best about, you know, living on campus for four years. And we're going to give you a really intentional version of that. So I, I'm guessing that's what we see. Um, and I think that it sort of, you know, it bifurcates where the, the sort of, you know, quote unquote, lower end schools look more like trade schools, the higher end schools just continue to be what they're doing. And in the middle of the market is where things get really hurt. Yeah, interesting. So there's going to be like a we work bubble, maybe, you know, where people, uh, you know, who want to work in an office have to have to test and isolate and, you know, you get that kombucha on tap, uh, you know, and and maybe some 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 lodging. What do you think about yeah. that, Yasha? You want to uh, you want to enter the WeWork bubble, and we could you know we could pod podcast together. And I'm ready, Sunil. I'm ready. You we didn't um, okay. we haven't told anybody, but we actually saw each other in real life. Sunil was nice enough to drive all the way up to Sonoma, and it was uh, it was kind of funny. We were super awkward. Didn't even know what to say to each other. Just stared. Yeah, I had a mask on. We ate at an outdoor restaurant. It was a thing. Well, I have I have one more question, and then I know Yasha has has one more in a wrap up. Um, you know, like I I kind of I think there's a bit of a generational divide, and I'm kind of at the I'm probably like the the oldest oldest millennial there is, um, or zennial, I guess technically, is is my classification. But um, it, it's kind of depressing, like you know, kind of the the world that's being outlined right now post COVID. Like I I think the college experience and, and all of that, you know, super valuable, you know, Ryan is the future really kind of all like going to be mostly screens here. Like what's, you know, and, and is that what the, the, the generation that's growing up right now, is that what they're going to value? Like in your opinion, you know, if you're five to 10 years old right now, like what, what are your values going to be? Like, what are you going to want for yourself? You know, by the time you're a full grown adult, yeah, I mean, I'm extremely hopeful that that's not the case. So one thing that, that at least our view on education and my view on education at Primer is that we are not trying to replace teachers with screens or technology. And I think a lot of um, 
I think a lot of entrepreneurs that have either built products for the education space or thought about building products for the education space have taken that angle. Um, and there's certainly, you know, value and innovation there. And like, there's, you know, will be interesting breakthroughs in the future. But, um, you know, we, I, I, for my own kids, like, I don't want them, their primary way that they learn things to be just through screens. I want them to be out in the real world, getting, you know, skinned knees and, you know, climbing trees and going on hikes and seeing nature and, um, you know, getting dirty and playing in the rain and all those things. And that's what's really important to me. And so um, how we structure learning at Primer, it, with the exception of things like learning how to code, which we help kids do, you know, in front of a screen, um, there's most of our projects and the clubs that kids join are actually them going and doing things in the real world. So the Primer app is really just like a companion for them. They're not sitting in front of a screen for four hours. They're out doing things. And so, of course, what that means is that we are not sort of a digital babysitter for your kids. So if you, you know, want a service that's just going to like, you know, help your kids learn by you sitting on the couch, uh, by them sitting on the couch for four hours, we're not going to do that. And there's other you know, companies that will. But I think that that's a much better education model for kids. And there's all sorts of research about this, too. Um, and so we view technology as a way to augment and supplement the experience um, and help kids have a much better experience in the real world learning. Um, now, TBD on how that plays out and if that's scalable, there's all sorts of situations where that's extremely difficult. You know, like I mentioned, a single parent that's working from home with kids that, you know, they're doing distance learning. That's extremely hard. Um, but I'm hopeful that, you know, the, 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 the sort of wave of technology that impacts education um, for the future is not about replacing teachers with screens, but about how do we give, in our case, like parents superpowers to educate their kids um, in a much more powerful way? And then how do we give, you know, teachers in school um, the ability to be much more effective um, as teachers as well? We've enjoyed the time today, Ryan, a lot. I've got one last, maybe simple question for you, but I want to prime you on the last question that we asked to all of our guests so that you can think about it a moment as I ask you the other question. So we're going to ask you kind of who you'd recommend all of our listeners follow on the social networks that you spend your time. It could be Twitter, places like that, Instagram. Um, it doesn't have to be somebody that cares about and talks about um, what we're talking about right now today as well. So kind of un unbounded recommendation. But before we get there, this has been a fascinating conversation, and I'm really curious if a listener has interest in learning more about homeschooling or some of these alternative to the mainstream models that we see, like where should they go to get educated? And um, you can obviously say Primer and Primer's website, but um, are there places, resources that you would recommend somebody to go spend some time to get educated? Yeah, so this is part of the void that we're trying to fill. There's a lot of different, if you Google like homeschooling regulations or different things like that, there's a lot of different sites out there. And um, there's the Homeschooling Legal Defense Association, which does a lot of lobbying work. Um, so there's different things like that that you can check out, but there's definitely not a consolidated place. You'll find a lot of bloggers and different sort of, you know, things like that, but there's no consolidated place. And so that's part of, part of the goal of Primer is to create that. Um, but the HSLDA is probably the closest thing to that. They have some, uh, they have like very specific political views, which, uh, you know, alienate some people. And so they're not, you know, sort of like a perfectly, like, you know, unbiased or um, sort of objective source, but they do have a lot of good resources for homeschoolers that are trying to figure out how to navigate it. Um, and they're probably the closest thing to like a full-fledged organization, um, but they, you know, they're lacking in a lot of ways. And so that's kind of the, the void that Primer is hoping to fill. Cool. Thank you for that. So on to the last question. Uh, on all the social networks that you spend your time, who's a recommended follow for our listeners? Yeah, so uh, this is a hard one to think about because um, you can't say Tyler Willis either. Yes, even uh, though Tyler he's our he's one of our favorite 
uh, Twitter celebrity ish people, but you can't say him. Yeah, he's great. So I'm going to, um, so my wife and I, we live in San Francisco and we're, um, we are very involved in trying to continue to get even more involved in our city and invested in our city, everything from like nonprofit organizations to local politics and elections. And, um, I just, just want to be much more civically engaged. And so there's a guy, um, even if you don't live in San Francisco that I think is really interesting to follow his name, Sachin Agarwal. And so his, his Twitter handle is just A G A R W A L. Um, or if I think if you just search Sachin, he's like one of the first people that came, comes up. Um, and he, he's awesome. He's worked at a bunch of different cool companies, um, sort of longtime SF resident. And now he's just full-time focused on basically how to make SF better and encouraging smart people to run in elections, helping them get started, um, you know, surfacing like, you know, ways for people to get engaged. Um, and he's just really trying to increase like the civic engagement of, of people in San Francisco. And I think it's really, really important. And especially going into an election season, um, like cities just, just this, especially San Francisco just has a lot of power. And so local elections matter a lot. Um, and I would love to see people, you know, get more engaged in that, whether it's in San Francisco or your own city. And so he's a good, um, you know, maybe can be inspiring if, if you're not from San Francisco and if you are from San Francisco, it'll be someone that we'll probably learn a lot from. Awesome. We appreciate it. We appreciate your time today a lot. Thank you for being here. Yeah. Thanks for having me. This is awesome. Thank you. Oh, let's just say we're stuck in COVID for one more year here, Yasha. At least. Um, where are your kids going to go to school? Uh, I'm actually, we're talking a little bit about what happens if we just pull up roots and go live somewhere else. So I don't know if that's homeschooling or if we stay kind of virtually attached to the school that they're in, if they even allow for that. But I think we might physically look for a different place to be just for a change of scenery. How about you? I think in for Californians in particular, it has just been a brutal year um, uh, between obviously COVID, between the fires, between everything else. And I think there's a, a much deeper existential question that many here in California have that has to be answered before we know what we're going to do for school. So, yeah. um, you know, it might be a homeschool in Austin, Texas, who knows? <laughs> I dig it. Well, you know, the other thing I'm thinking about starting up like a homeschool pod somewhere in Northern California in the forest. And we're going to spend at least half of our day raking the leaves on the forest floor to see if we can make a dent in these forest fires. What an incredible idea. You know what? We should all do that. Let's just, I'm going to move our pod to, uh, to a risky zone right now and, uh, and get them to just rake, rake leaves. And I think raking leaves is probably one of the most important things you can learn as a kid. It, today's conversation was uh, a lot of fun. Uh, and I was really surprised at the breadth that we got to cover in large part because I had a bunch of preconceptions about homeschooling. I, did you feel the same way going into the conversation? Did you think you knew what homeschooling was or even why some of the misperceptions existed or the perceptions existed? Yeah, not really. I, I didn't, I didn't know what homeschool kids did. Right. Like, and it just seemed like a much harder path to get to where your ultimate outcome was going to be, which was, you know, hopefully a top tier institution. It was pretty cool today, and I think uh, because we said his name probably like five times over the course of the episode, just one more shout out to Tyler Willis who made the connection into Ryan for us. Uh, today was a super fun conversation. Thanks for listening to This Is Your Life in Silicon Valley. If you enjoyed listening to this podcast as much as Sunil and I enjoyed recording it, Please go back to the application you found this podcast on, rank us five stars, leave us a comment. We read every single one. Thanks for listening to This Is Your Life in Silicon Valley.